Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to hear the remarkable story, a true story of Vietnam War hero, Chief Master Sergeant Dick Etchberger. He had a leading role in a secret radar mission in Laos. And in fact, the mission was classified for many years. And there's another uh, subsequent uh, story about how, uh, once the uh, story became declassified, uh, Dick Etchberger received the Medal of Honor. And we are talking with uh, Matt Proietti, who is a uh, Chief Master Sergeant in the Air Force Reserve and uh, wrote the book. The book is At All Costs. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by two of uh, Dick Etchberger's uh, sons, uh, Rich Etchberger, who is Professor of Wildland Resources at Utah State University, uh, Uanna Basin. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. And Corey Etchberger, another son, a biology professor at Ursinus College in Pennsylvania. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I should mention that there is uh, there's another son, uh, Steve, I believe, um, and he'll he'll be he'll figure prominently as we go along. Talk about your mother, uh, uh, Catherine, right? As as well. Yes, that's correct. Yep. I, w- I want to start with uh, Rich. You say in the uh, the foreword to the book that two telephone calls bookend most of your memories of your father. First one's March 12, 1968. Tell me about that phone call. Well, Tom, uh, that phone call, um, Corey and I uh, were sitting at our house in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, and we were having dinner that night, and the phone rang, and I picked up the phone, and, uh, you know, I answered it just as, you know, Dad had taught us, and I I said, uh, Edgeburger Residence, can I help you? And uh, on the other end of the line, the gentleman asked for uh, for my mom, and I handed the phone to her. And uh, within about 30 seconds, uh, she just broke down crying. And uh, she was saying things like, they told me, you know, they would never call on the phone. And I had never seen my mom uh, actually break down and cry before. And so we were living in a duplex, and uh, we had some good friends next door, so I took off running down through the, the connecting uh, basement to get the neighbors next door. And by the time I came back, my mom was kind of uh, half laying on the floor and she was just, um, she, she was crying and screaming about that dad was dead. Hmm. Yeah, very traumatic. How old were you? Uh, I was 10 years old at that time. Yeah. And Corey, how old were you? I was nine. Nine years old. And you say in, your, in the afterward to this book, you say that you... The dessert that evening was uh, strawberry shortcake. You haven't eaten that since. I have not eaten strawberry shortcake since March 12th, 1968. It's pretty pretty traumatic. I guess it would be for a for a young it, boy. It really was. It just uh, uh, was just something that I just can't seem to bring myself to do. Hmm. Yeah. What were your feelings then to, to receive that call? I guess quite similar to Rich's. Yeah. It was. Uh, you know, it's pretty devastating for our family. We. Uh, we're living off base at home as civilians in Hamburg, and uh, you know, I guess if there's anything good that can come of, of that, uh, it's that we had a wonderful support network with uh, Dad's parents and his his brother and sister-in-law. So mm. we did have that support network, luckily. And your your brother Steve was out, in, I think, in California, and he he says that uh, on the day your dad died, or at least they, they learned his first child was being born. Correct, uh, Tracy. Um, Dad's uh, granddaughter uh, was born that same day. So, you know, for the Etchberger family, that's a that's a pretty bittersweet day every year. Yeah. And then, uh, Rich, you said that the, the other 
phone call that bookends this. I guess the call where you where you learn that uh, your dad's going to get the Medal of Honor. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I was actually uh, that summer. Uh, my family and I were uh, kind of got away over into Colorado, up in a cabin up in the mountains, and I didn't have a, a cell phone connection, uh, no internet, anything like that. And I actually I was driving uh, off of the mountain. Um, to go get some groceries and things, and uh, I noticed that Corey had tried to call me a number of times. And uh, so I pulled over next to the road, and I thought, well, I'm going to call and see why he's tried to call me so many times. And I called Corey, and all he said to me was, the president called. <laughs> <laughs> and I, <laughs> I had a pretty good idea what that was going to be about, so um, that was a pretty emotional road stop. And, uh, uh, Corey, tell me about that call from the president. I guess the president, one of the things he has to do is reassure people that, yes, this really is the president. So um, a woman came on the phone, and she said she was President Obama's uh, assistant, and would I hold for a call? And he came on the line. He said, Corey, this is President Obama. And so I kind of um, also wanted to make him feel like I didn't think it was a prank, so I said, yes, yes, Mr. President, I recognize your voice. And he, he knew details of Dad's story that I was actually pretty amazed with. It wasn't just a phone call saying we're going to award the Medal of Honor. He knew a lot about the details about Dad. And he, I guess, apologized a few times that it took so long for the award to actually happen 42 years later. And, um, and we just had a lot of very nice things to say about my father. Mm. And uh, then when he hung up, I was able to try and convey to my family that the president really did call, <laughs> because not many folks believe you when, when you say that. Um, and actually, my daughter was here at the time at the house, my 15-year-old daughter. And, and so she and she and my wife and I had a good cry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before I bring uh, Matt Proietti in, I want to establish a little bit of background, the Etchberger family. So Many, many decades. Well, in fact, uh, I, I think, uh, Matt Pryde, you, you know a bit about this. Let me bring you at this point. Uh, Etchberger family in Hamburg goes back uh, centuries. Really does. I think I think Corey helped me with that, uh, um, the research. But, uh, yeah, they've been over there since before the American Revolution. They changed the spelling of their name um, through the years and all that. But uh, it was a pretty remarkable remarkable to be able to to trace that back and the fact that uh, uh, Dick was raised you know probably within 20 miles of where uh, his his great 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 you know ancestors had had come over mm. and settled and uh, Corey your I think your grandfather had a store downtown very well known you know Etchberger name there yep um, he he managed a store called Miller's five and ten and uh, he he uh, lost his house in the depression prior to that and he decided he was never going to let that happen again so he had a pretty strict work work ethic that he passed on down to my father and passed on down to rich and i as well um it was a uh you know no one worked harder at that store than he did to make sure it succeeded now rich uh your parents met in salt lake city i believe Uh, yeah that's correct um they, uh, my dad was stationed, he was working out at the Salt Lake Airport, and he was stationed out of Hill Air Force Base. And uh, one of the things that he would do in the morning, uh, he would drive drive from Hill out to the Salt Lake Airport, and he would stop at 
a little restaurant called Hijinks, which was, um, you know, allegedly world famous uh, for their donuts. And uh, my aunts and uncles, uh, my mom being from Salt Lake, I have a lot of aunts and uncles in Salt Lake, and they relayed the story uh, to us that it was love at first sight. And uh, that, and I've always said, well, she must have made some pretty good donuts because, uh, <laughs> you know, he was he'd only been going in there for a couple months before, uh, you know, they started dating and eventually got married. Matt Pareda, you have an incident in the book. I don't know if you get this uh, from family lore or from straight from one of the aunts, you know, the, the mother's sister, said that it, it must have been love at first sight because uh, quite shortly after they initially met, I mean, the first meeting, they were in a booth together in this in this diner. Right. That did come from uh, one of Corey and Richard's, Rich's aunts. And uh, Kay was working there as a waitress, and I believe one of the other sisters, I think three sisters, worked there. One of the sisters worked as a waitress, too, and one was working as a cook. But, yep, that's exactly what she said. And he would stop in, and next thing you know, Kay would be sitting next to him in the booth <laughs> talking, and, you know, six months later or whatever, they were married. <laughs> And uh, Kay was uh, had a had a child from a previous marriage, right? This is this is Steve. That's right, Steve Steve Wilson. They're uh, yeah. Rich and Corey's uh, uh, older half brother. Mm-hmm. Once they got once they got married, I understand that uh, that uh, Dick took him in and treated him like a you know, just like a son, just like the other sons. So uh, let me start with this with with Rich. You guys, uh, I guess, is typical with a, an Air Force family. Uh, you moved around a lot. You lived in Morocco, for example. Actually, I um, um, I was born in uh, November of 1957, and uh, we were on a boat uh, to Morocco within a couple of weeks of me being born, and then uh, spent a couple of years uh, living there. Corey was born in Morocco, and uh, and then after we wrapped that up, we were off to North Dakota. Uh, again, we spent a couple of years there, and uh, and then on to the Philippines. Hmm. So, Corey, tell me about what was it like? I guess you living on base. Did you go to you go to base schools and such? You know, actually, for me, I think for both Rich and I, life on base was pretty was pretty good. We we enjoyed it a lot. I mean, everybody moved two or three years, and that's just the way it was. So, what that meant was you made friends quick, and you made good friends because you knew you may not be seeing them again. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just a lifestyle that both Rich and I, I think uh, took to pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was, let me start with Corey with this one, what was your dad like then? I mean, he died when you were nine, Rich was ten, what was he like? He uh, uh, was handed down uh, his legacy from his father, so he was, I'm not sure if strict is the right word, but probably no nonsense might be a a good, you know, if if he asked you to do something, he didn't expect that he was going to ask you again. Um, And I tested that a few times, and, you know, I I learned pretty quick. I mean, just, you know, he, he, he expected you to, to do what, what he asked you to do. And to be honest with you, I think that's probably why the men who served with him enjoyed serving with him, because they knew they could trust what he said, and he was going to do what he said he was going to do and expected the same from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing I was really impressed about that was he was, when he had time off, it, Rich and I were his priority. So he would go outside and throw a ball with us and take us fishing and take us swimming. And, um, you know, he... He had a real important job to do, but he also had an important job when he came home, and he, he did that really well. Rich, what was what are your memories? What was your dad like? Well, I you know I really remember not not only of my dad, but also for his parents. We were uh, a really tight family. Um, the, his parents would actually travel to places that we were stationed, such as in Morocco, 
And uh, when we would get time off, we'd go to Hamburg and get some time to spend with them. And uh, and like Corey said, you know, when when Dad wasn't working, he was really focused on on kind of doing stuff with us. Um, you know, I, I I think back on this all the time, and this is something I've kind of tried to emulate in my family is is when holidays would roll around, uh, Dad would get us, <laughs> unbeknownst to each other, would get Corey and I down in the basement making a gift for each other. <laughs> um, so that like one night, uh, Corey might be down there working on a sword and shield set so that I could play King Arthur, and you know the next day I'd be down there uh, working, sanding a bicycle for Corey. Um, and uh, yeah, I really, uh, I remember back on those things, kind of opening up the gifts and kind of looking across and, and just kind of laughing to myself that, uh, you know, dad tricked us again kind of thing. So. <laughs> Very good. Very good. If you just joined us, we're talking about uh, a, a gripping story. It's the true story of Vietnam War hero, Chief Master Sergeant Dick Etchberger. We're talking with uh, two of his sons, Rich and Corey, and we're talking with the author of a new book on this, At All Costs, the title of the book, Matt Proietti, is the author. Uh, so, Matt, um, as, as you read through the book, and as uh, Corey made reference to, Dick Etchberger was, um, he inspired a lot of confidence, love, camaraderie among his men, and he was, uh, he was seen as a rising star in the Air Force. He was. He had already, um, he had soared up through the ranks, um, joining as a, as a young airman right out of high school, and um, made it all the way up from uh, the pay grade you start at when you, when you enlist uh, like that is what we call E1. E for enlisted, and uh, yeah, he made it all the way up to E9 in, uh, I think, 14-plus years, which is very fast. It took me uh, uh, 24 years <laughs> to get that high, but um, he was. He he was definitely a great all-around GI. Um, his bosses loved him. His peers loved him. The folks who worked under him loved him. I didn't really talk to anybody who had anything but just praise for him, like, like, uh, like one of the his sons just said they, they, um, he he did what he did what he was supposed to do, and he expected uh, uh, you to do the same. Uh, so I understand that he was going to join the Navy, like the white uniforms. Ended up in the Air Force. How did that happen? Yeah, we don't know that. We don't know. He he and his friend Don Yoakum, uh, and I got this story from Donnie um, that they were going to join the Navy. About it, they were like juniors in high school, and they loved those white uniforms. <laughs> okay, um, and. For whatever reason, we don't know, uh, Dad joined the Air Force in 51, and then Donnie uh, took a year off, and he joined the Air Force in 52. It would be nice to know why he, why he went with the Air Force mm-hmm. instead. Yeah. Well, Dick, Dick's older brother was serving in the Navy while, while Dick was still in high school. Their uncle uh, was off, so that might have had played. Oh, it could have could done, yeah. Yeah, right. He might have been coming home in that nice uniform. Yeah, that would that would have been in person. inspirational. Uh, so, so Matt Proietti, um, this was before when he joined was before the I guess the all those horrible things started happening when you know soldiers came home and were were shunned and you know spit upon and all all of those things. Um, but but I imagine the reasons why someone joins the military are have stayed pretty constant throughout the years. I wonder, speculating why Dick Edgeberger joined I, up. I think I think so. I think you're right about that. The He joined right out of high school, and again, without being able to talk to him directly or his, uh, or his widow, uh, you know, you just kind of suppose these things. And, and um, I reviewed uh, the family, uh, gave me access to all of the 
the records that they have that that shows what he was doing back there in 1951 and 52 and on all the way through. I mean, Corey had those records, and then we sat down at a table when this all started, all the research, and started going through. And I was able to explain what uh, what those particular forms mean and uh, piece together really his whole whole career. I mean, they had we've uh, reviewed a lot of his performance reports where his bosses would would uh, comment on uh, his performance that year and uh, so you can really you can really tell a lot when you have those records and me being a I've been in the Air Force for 30 years you end up just having a, a feel for things and uh, but yeah I think you're right to go back to your original question I think people probably still join today for the reasons he joined 50 uh, or 1951 let me direct this question to Rich uh, apparently Kay his wife uh, took to being an Air Force wife she she, you know, embraced it. Yeah, it. Um, you know, Mom. Um, when we would when we would be on base somewhere, um, you know, we'd all move on and settle in, and then usually, you know, all through his career, Dad was going off on uh, different missions in different places, and he'd be gone from everything from two weeks to uh, six months at a time. And uh, you know, Mom kept the uh, kept everything running smooth there. She was. Uh, they were. They were a really good team um, where she would uh, just kind of, you know, keep us in line. Um, sometimes I imagine, and now that I've got kids, that, that uh, you know, that was kind of a challenge for her. Uh, but she, she did a, a really fine job of that. And, uh, um, and I think that's what, you know, later on in life really made her uh, continue on being, a, you know, a great Air Force wife even after my dad was killed. Let's take a break now. When we come back, uh, we'll get into the the uh, heart of the story here, the, the reason for this uh, the traumatic call, March 12, 1968, and the reason why uh, Kay Etchberger is pretty tight-lipped about, about this for many years, um, the reason why Dick Etchberger was in Laos. In fact, the official story was that he had died in a helicopter accident or being shot down in, in Vietnam, I believe, and uh, though he had received, I believe, what is it, the Air Force Cross? Yes, the Air Force Cross. Which is the highest honor the Air Force can, can give. That's right. He, as we'll learn later, uh, was eligible for, uh, because of his heroism, for the Medal of Honor, but that couldn't be because the documents were classified. We'll get into this riveting story following this break. Imagine a world where you're walking down the street. And you just can't tell if someone is 80 or 180 years of age. It'll seem like aging was a quaint idea of the 20th century. Welcome to the future. I'm Guy Raz, searching for the fountain of youth. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Featuring South Pacific, in addition to seminars, green shows, and more as part of the festival experience. Information at bard.org. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, Monday, May 25th, Veterans Day. Stay tuned for the rest of Access Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, hearing the heroic story of Vietnam War hero Chief Master Sergeant Dick Etchberger. We're talking with the author of a new book on this, At All Costs is the name of the book, Matt Proietti.
is the author. He is a chief master sergeant in the Air Force Reserve. We're talking with two of Dick Etchberger's sons, uh, Rich Etchberger, professor of wildland resources at Utah State University, Uinta Basin, and Corey Etchberger, biology professor at uh, Ursinus College in Pennsylvania. And we're on tape, uh, so no calls in uh, on the program uh, today. Matt Proietti, I wonder if you could get into telling this story. This is the story that could not be told for, for quite a few years because it was a secret, secret mission, right? Um, Dick Etchberger had been recruited, asked to go on this, this mission uh, to Laos. Why was this necessary? What uh, maybe put set the context? Well, uh, Dick was what was in a career field called radar bomb scoring. And what that was... This is back, you know, absolutely in the in the you know the height of the Cold War, and um, Dick was assigned to the, what they called the Strategic Air Command, pretty much all throughout his career until he headed over into the Pacific. But the um, they would do this radar bomb scoring, where the radar would actually these men on the ground would guide airplanes to. Uh, locations or to targets. So he had been doing that job for quite a long time. And so then uh, when when 1967 came around, you know, in 65 to 67, he was over in the Philippines. In Vietnam really, the Vietnam War really uh, ramped up in 65. And so by 67, they, the, the bombing of North Vietnam, the results weren't where President Johnson really wanted them to be. He, he was trying to, this whole reason for this mission was they wanted to get, try to force North Vietnam to the bargaining table. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as any uh, person who reads the Vietnam history knows, this is, this is very political. You, uh, President Johnson has two fronts. He, he's trying to, uh, you know, win the war, but he also is trying to keep up support at home. And, uh, so I, I believe he decided not to use B-52s, right? And that's why they needed an installation closer to North Vietnam? What, what they were doing was, you know, th- they had to have this radar site uh, within 150 miles, I think it was, of uh, Hanoi. They they needed, a, that's why it ended up on this mountain peak where it was, very close to North Vietnam. They needed, that was the best location. I mean, the Air Force determined, okay, that's that's where this equipment needs to be, and and Dick was uh, the top enlisted man on that crew that went up there and ran that equipment. And they were they would go from uh, Udorn Air Base in Thailand, which is where they they were. That was where their mission was based. It was called Project Heavy Green. They would go from there in two week shifts. You know, they had about 30 people total, I think, on the on the mission, and about 11 at a time would go up and run this equipment for two weeks, and then and then the other crew would come replace them, and the the ones that had been working would go back to Thailand and you know have some have some relaxing time for two mm-hmm. weeks. Tell me about this mountain. It seems like a spectacular uh, site that they were on. Well, it's called Pupati. And it is uh, five thousand something feet up, and there's a cliff on one side of it, which is uh, comes really into play later on in their mission. It's about three thousand feet straight up, but they were uh, the top of this mountain. But the mountain wasn't it wasn't unknown before to us before uh, the Air Force uh, folks went in there because the CIA had a whole uh, series of these landing strips all around. Um, 
Laos and South Vietnam and everything, these remote landing strips, and they would they would be like resupply points, and they called them Lima sites. And uh, Lima, I think, was just another – it starts with an L, and it means like landing site. But so they uh, – there was this Lima site, 85 was the name of that particular one. So there was a dirt landing strip on this uh, – right below the peak, not where, not where the Air Force men, not where uh, Dick Etchberger and the other – uh, men worked, but not far from there. Just down below there, there was a little dirt strip, and there was a little trailer there with a couple of uh, CIA guys working in it. Hmm. So they were there. They were there already. I don't know exactly when, but um, yeah, the Air Force showing up there just meant there was more Amer- more Americans there than than previous. They were there, and they also had a thing up there, a, a tactical air navigation beacon, and that's what it really was all about. Was so so our uh, our pilots, Air America pilots, and all that could could navigate in the area. So uh, the, the the bombings must have been pretty successful because uh, it's important that now March of '68, North Vietnamese are they're wanting to overtake the site, I believe. Right, right. It was um, it's it's you know w- with all these years going by, it's kind of hard for for me even to comprehend. And I I you know I interviewed. Uh, uh, the former commander of the mission. He he was uh, down at Udorn Air Base um, on the day of the attack. His work was mainly done down there. His name was Jerry Clayton. He since has passed away since uh, I interviewed him. And um, I interviewed a couple other. The, the uh, Chief Etchberger ended up being credited with saving the lives of three men, two two of whom have since passed away. One, one is still living. But the um, what's amazing is you, is you talk to these talked to these guys about what they were doing was by the you know they got up there in the fall of 67 and they pretty much knew right away that there was enemy very close to where they were down in the valley below you know they they knew that they were you know and that and that the enemy knew about them when when they when they were preparing that the mountain peak to to bring the radar equipment up there and a couple of living work tra- working trailers and living trailers they had to send up an explosives team up there and and so you know when that work was being done in the summer of 67 you know they're up there leveling off a mountain peak they're you know big helicopters coming in and then there's explosions going on so then the people down in the valley you know the bad guys down in the valley are looking up and going oh some it's pretty obvious that something the Americans were going to be doing something um, pretty important. Mm. Tell tell me about the events uh, for which Dick Etchberger was uh, was awarded the uh, the Medal of Honor. Well, there was a uh, you know they, they pretty much knew at some point there was going to be an attack, and they were right. What they didn't know was that there was going to be that cliff I mentioned earlier, three thousand feet straight up. I mean, I've never seen the cliff in person, but I've seen photos of it, and I've seen video of it, and it is a straight-up cliff. And so what happened was, the uh, on the night of the uh, the night before uh, Dick was killed, they uh, they knew they had intelligence. You know, they the CIA had people down in the in the valley. They also on one side of the or on most of the mountain, they the the CIA or the Americans had employed. Uh, Hmong and uh, uh, Thai regular you know, military soldiers who who were guarding the top of the peak, both for the CIA people over on over on their side of the mountain, and also for 
uh, the Air Force people up there doing their work. So there were armed people down below them. And so everybody expected that when an attack occurred, that they would have plenty of time to escape, bring in helicopters up to the peak, let the people, let the forces, you know, the friendly forces down on the, uh, down below them, let them uh, fight and, and give them some time to, to get away. They were all armed and trained, you know, fighters. So what what ended up happening, though, was that, that went on. I mean, there was people fighting down on the hill. Some explosives came in, some rounds, some, uh, you know, a rocket came in on the night before the uh, before uh, Dick was killed. They were they knew an attack was imminent. Their boss called them all together and said, hey, you know, how do we want to proceed? And everybody there agreed that they would just continue the night's missions and they would support bombing runs into North Vietnam. And so they agreed to stay and do that. And then, and just when, just when they were talking about that, a rocket came in to the camp where they were all a meeting nearby. In fact, they had just been uh, one of the, you know, the day shift people, if you will, had gotten off uh, work and they all had extra duties in camp. And one of them is guy, John Daniel, who is still alive in Colorado, he was uh, cooking up some, getting ready to grill some some steaks, I think, for dinner. And he always said that if that boss, uh, his name was Lieutenant Colonel um, Blanton, if he didn't call that meeting, he said that that round landed right, that rocket landed right by where they were just, he was barbecuing. (laughs) And there were guys all around him talking to him. So if they didn't leave for that meeting, he figured five or six guys would have been killed right then. Hmm. But because of because they, he called them over to talk about what they want to do for the night, you want to you know, try to get out now or stay till morning. Um, the fact that he called that little meeting saved those people's lives right at that moment. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So, uh, Chief Master Sergeant Dick Etchberger, he was responsible at, at the heat of the height of this battle. He's he's getting his men off the mountain, right, In, into a helicopter. He did, and you know, so that first rocket came in about six o'clock at night, and then it kind of quieted down. There might have been some other, some small arms fire. You might have heard it below, but the, but you know, after that initial shock of a, hey, a rocket landing, landing in your camp, and everyone going getting, you know, their helmets and flak vests and things like that, the people just went back to work. The the night crew who had just started their shift, they went back to work, and then the other people, Dick Etchberger and um, a couple. Uh, Ten other guys, I think it was. They um, they were off, and, and they kind of gathered by themselves in little clusters, and were basically where they were just going to wait out the night and leave in the morning. But the real surprise came was in the middle of the night. You know, when that first attack had happened at six o'clock, there was a, a team of special forces, uh, North Vietnam, North Vietnamese Army special forces, who were at the base of the the cliff, not on the side where the the, the friendly uh, forces are, are, you know, uh, were protecting our people, but at the bottom of this cliff that nobody thought you could, anybody could climb up. Well, they started climbing up that cliff, and, you know, I didn't interview any of those people directly, but I've read the reports, and it's, uh, you know, what they did was basically climb climb up something like, uh, you know, Half Dome or El Capitan or something in Yosemite, something straight up like that. And then, and then they launched an attack. They carried their gear up with them, and they got up there in the middle of the night. And so that was a surprise, surprise attack. You know that nobody was, no one was thinking anyone was coming up that that cliff. 
so it's uh, it's it is you know there's no other word for it heroic what uh, Dick Edgeberger did he he did risk his life getting those men into that helicopter didn't he he did we, he there was he ended up and um, there was a little I call it an alcove it was not a it was not a cave a cave would have provided them more shelter than what they had that you know they were just down below the the um, where the radar camp was, where the the trailers were, and they these men went down there. Dick Etchberger and four others were down there, kind of huddled together, a small, small, uh, little ledge. And then, meanwhile, the other guys on their team are up working up in the trailers and everything. And so, when the attack happened, these these uh, the the North Vietnamese Army Special Forces they came up and. Uh, you know, were either to the left of where these men were huddled or to the right, but they weren't right, you know, right where they were. They went up all the way to the peak, and then they attacked um, the other Americans, the Air Force people who were up there working up in the trailers. Well, well, this group of five was down there huddled uh, with with each other, and uh, eventually the uh, the enemy, you know, knew they were there and started dropping down uh uh, hand grenades down there, and two of the men were killed pretty quickly. So there was five there, and then two of them got killed pretty quickly, leaving just Dick Etchberger, uh, an officer, a young captain named Stan Sliz, and uh, and then the sergeant John Daniel. So it was uh, the three of them there. Well, more grenades. I mean, they kept coming down, and then just being dropped down on them, and they'd throw some back, or they would knock them off the cliff, or whatever. But both Stan and John both were gravely wounded uh, with shrapnel, and Stan kept passing in and out of consciousness. John John was uh, conscious the whole time, but Dick really, you know, this, that whole through that whole ordeal, Dick was not injured by any of that, um, by any of the shrapnel, any of the debris. So then in the morning, what happened was, meanwhile, a lot of their coworkers up top had been killed up in the trailer and uh, some of the enemy had been killed so in the morning uh the these helicopters showed up to help with the rescue plus there were some other air force planes came in and what we call like softened up the target i mean they were they were dropping bombs and firing firing rounds in there and all that which you know would cause the enemy to kind of kind of uh, hide for a while or something but the the first helicopter in there was not an Air Force helicopter. It was an Air America helicopter, basically a CIA helicopter. And these two guys were just, you know, 20, 20 miles away at another peak and heard about this need to, for this rescue. And so they went over there and pulled right up to the right up to the cliff. I mean, 3,000 feet up. I mean, they're 5,000 feet up in elevation, but at the top of a 3,000 foot cliff, and so Dick Etchberger's there, and he's got an M16, and he's firing some rounds at the North Vietnamese soldiers to to uh, um, to keep them, you know, um, at bay. And what happened on that Air America helicopter? There was a pilot, and there was a, a crew chief, a guy in the back, and he had a winch. That was why they were the first ones in. They had a winch and a cable that could that could haul these men up. And so they. Dick stayed down there and was firing his rifle and helping these his injured men onto that cable. And they, they uh, were reeled up one at a time. And so uh, one guy went, and then a second guy. And this isn't very fast. You're reeling them in. I don't know how fast that goes, but it's not, it's 
not instantaneous. And so this went on for at least several minutes, I would think. And so the two men got up there safely, the two injured men, Stan Sliz and John Daniel. And then out of nowhere comes another gentleman, Willie Husband. There's two other Americans who end up surviving. But Willie Husband came running from the top of the very top of the, the mountain. You know, he, he sees this helicopter come in, and you just know he must be thinking, if I don't get out of here on that helicopter, the, the, you know, the, they're going to find me or they're going to kill me. So he comes running down. He's uninjured. He's been playing dead for hours. He comes down, down this little path, and there's Dick Etchberger, sees him, and then the two of them get up on the helicopter on that cable, and they ride it up together. And they get up, and they make it safely up onto the... The helicopter, and the helicopter has been taking some small arms fire from the North Vietnamese soldiers. But so now four men, four Americans, have made it on to the Air America helicopter. But right when that happened, Chief Etchberger, Dick sat down, and they were still firing rounds from down below. And a little burst, maybe four or five, the, the crew chief in the back of the helicopter believes he saw four or five holes in the floor. Uh, and one of those rounds tragically hit Dick Etchberger. Yeah, while he was while he was on the helicopter. Yeah, amazing, right. amazing story. Made all the more amazing by the fact that uh, Dick Etchberger was a technician, right? He, he this is his, I think, his first firefight, right? Sure. Yeah. They, these these men were absolutely technicians. They were radar experts. Another one of the people was like a generator expert. He was in charge of keeping the power going. And in that, they didn't have fighting backgrounds. I mean, we're all trained to some level to, to fire rifles at basic training and things like that. And they had, um, when they were up there, believe it or not, they, they actually didn't even have any, any rifles at first because they had, to join this mission, they had all resigned uh, to, you know, to, to keep it undercover. They had technically had resigned from the Air Force, and they became employees of a... Uh, of um, of a company of a corporation that mm-hmm. that uh, uh, and, and and that's how that went. I mean, they all resigned before they ever left, so they weren't there in Air Force uniform. They were there in in uh, in regular work clothes, and so hey, giving them giving them uh, weapons would have uh, kind of blown their cover immediately. So so they were up there the first few months and didn't have any weapons. But when the thing started getting, um, it looked like an attack was going to be you know, coming coming soon, they did. They were issued some M16s. Let's uh, take another break. When we come back, I'll bring uh, Rich and Corey Etchberger back into the conversation, and we'll move to uh, the Medal of Honor, uh, which is finally received by, uh, I think, uh, well, the, the, the sons received it uh, on behalf of the father, and that happened, I believe, in uh, 2010. Uh, let's take a break, come back following this. How's this for a dangerous idea? What if you'd never been born? I'd rather not have existed. That's different from would I rather be dead. Counterfactual, controversial, and unthinkable. An hour of dangerous ideas. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are learning the uh, true story of Vietnam War hero Chief Master Sergeant Dick Etchberger. The book is At All Costs. The author is Matt Proietti. He's just told us in the last segment the gripping story of, uh, of the, the incidents which, uh, which earned uh, uh, Chief Master Sergeant Dick Etchberger the, the Medal of Honor many years later. Um, we have with us Matt Proietti. He is uh, Chief Master Sergeant in the Air Force Reserve. We have with us Rich Etchberger, Professor of Wildland Resources, Utah State University, Uona Basin, and Corey Etchberger, Biology Professor at Ursinus College in, uh, in Pennsylvania. So uh, let me pick this uh, story up with, with you, Rich. Um, you uh, I believe, say in, say in the book, that, um, th- that you believe that there had to be a cover story, right? The, you know, the, the government couldn't say um, uh, Dick Etchberger has been killed in Laos because they officially weren't there. So the, 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 the story of the helicopter crash, I guess you, you're a young boy. You believe this for several years because that's what, that's what you're told. Yeah, yeah, Tom, that's correct. Um, you know, I was I was ten years old, and um, and the first story that I heard was that you know Dad had been killed in a helicopter crash, and um, in fact, everything that was kind of printed, um, you know, in the newspaper and his hometown newspaper and so forth, everything alluded to that it was a helicopter crash, and they said at that time that it was in Southeast Asia, um, so they kept everything very generalized, um, and. Uh, you know, even though at, at one point Dad received uh, the Air Force Cross uh, in a secret ceremony down in the Pentagon, um, and some of the it, the true story was told to my mother, um, you know, she never shared any of that with uh, with anybody in the family. And uh, up until um, the late 1980s, uh, we got a little more information that kind of, uh, again, was very generalized as some of the, the, the Air Force documents were being declassified. Um, but I, I pretty much believe my dad died in, in a helicopter crash up until about um, the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. And Corey, uh, you have an interesting anecdote in your afterward here. You, nine-year-old boy, you didn't want to go see the, the body of your dad. You, I guess you were influenced by sci-fi movies and the like. You were, you were kind of scared to go see him. Yeah, <clears throat> I was. I mean, I was... Uh... I had never seen a dead person before. I had no idea what to expect. I'd never been to a funeral. And so I just refused to go. And um, mom and mom and the rest of the family left to go down to the funeral home, which was only a mile away. And uh, we, uh, I was in town the next day. My grandfather, which I now realize what he did, he took me into his store um, and we were just sort of doing some work uh, together. I was helping him with some things, and the funeral parlor was right across the street uh, from his store. And so at some point that morning, he uh, took me by the hand. He said, come on, let's go see your dad. So, um, And, you know, obviously he was in, as Rich has said before, he was in perfect, perfect condition. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really have a reference when you're 9 and 10 what someone looks like uh, being killed in a helicopter crash. Um, so it was, uh, I would say it was, mom kept that secret from Rich and I and everybody else for about 20 years. Uh, Matt Proietti, I guess she, she was told what the mission was, but she was sworn to secrecy. Yes. All the, um, the, the men, um, on the mission on Project Heavy Green who were married, their wives were brought to Washington, D.C. with the men, 
just before the men all went overseas to to go to work. Um, yeah, they were they were brought in for a few days. They were told uh, right up front what the mission was, and uh, then sworn to secrecy. Uh, Rich Etchberger, what point did you learn that uh, the story you had been told was was not the full story? Well, I I got married in 1994, and um, uh, the family had all gotten together out in uh, at my brother our brother Steve's house in California. And it just so happened that there was a television report on. Uh, we were all sitting there, you know, and it just came on the TV, and they talked about a secret mission in Laos, and uh, they didn't name any names. Uh, they didn't say anything, but my mom, uh, our mom, started talking uh, just a very little bit about uh, Dad's life and kind of alluding to the fact that Dad, you know, was part of this mission. Uh, and, uh, at that time it was really interesting. Mom never really talked about, uh, dad's life too much after, uh, after, uh, he had gone over to, uh, to Laos. And so that was about the first time that I, I, I got a little bit of information there about that. Now it was, it was kind of tragic that mom, uh, within a couple of weeks of that, uh, mom had a heart attack and died. So it, I got, you know, of course, no more information from mom on that, but, in uh, when I took, I've been here at the Uinta Basin uh, since 1995 at Utah State, and I got a phone call one night in, uh, I believe it was October of 1995, at my house, and and the gentleman on the other end of the line wanted to know if I was Richard Etchberger, the son of Richard L. Etchberger, which is my father, and uh, the gentleman introduced himself as Tim Castle, and uh, that he uh, had been in the Air Force and and been in in the CIA, and he was. He was working on a book about the the whole Project Heavy Green episode in uh, in Laos, and he he said to me that night, he said, "Rich, if you've got a little time, I can tell you the story about your father's life uh, in the Air Force and what really happened." And I always say it was it was a couple hours later and a box of tissues later. Um, you know, I finally knew what what really happened. Mm. And what did what did you think at that point? Um, well. You know, uh, I said there's. It, it's taken me, um, you know, the last since that time to kind of still uh, come to grips with that. Um, you know, you go through your life from being a a ten year old kid uh, thinking your dad's killed in a, a helicopter crash to actually meeting the people that he saved. Um, so it's it's been a very um, it's it's impacted my life. Let me turn to Corey Etchberger. You write in your afterward there. You remember talking directly to your mom about your dad only three times. I wonder if you could briefly tell me those three times. Well, um, one of those times I can remember was uh, when we I was in high school. Um, and like every good teacher, you know, the, if they're supposed to open your, your education is supposed to open your eyes, not, not, not tell you what you already know. And, and my uh, government teacher was talking about communism. And, um, I mean, he was talking about... Um, sort of the pros and cons to the various forms of government. And I went home and I said to Mom, hey, we learned about communism today in, in high school. And she said, you know, your dad died fighting communism. Hmm. And so that was a really big, you know, kind of a big, uh, I'm not sure if wake-up call is the right word, but, uh, you know, it was a, uh, it got me thinking about him, um, and it got me thinking about uh 
all all the people that served during the Vietnam War and, and what what their role was. And then there, there's a poignant moment. You're talking to your mother. This is uh, I think ninety four. Two weeks after you've turned thirty five. Dad, dad uh, spent 17 years in high school and seven, 17, 18 years in, uh, in uh, the Air Force, and he turned 35. And I, I, um, she called me the day, the day after uh, I turned 35, and she reminded me that I had lived longer than he had. Mm. Yeah, that, that is pretty poignant. Uh, what, what did you think when you started learning the, the, the full story? You know, everything sort of came out in very small little dribs, as Rich alluded to. There was no sort of shocking, here's the entire story. In fact, we are still learning things today. Uh, We were just at a book signing in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, and um, um, and then I was one in Philadelphia last week, and I met met a gentleman who knew some of the guys who were on that mountain. He told me some things about uh, them. he told me that they actually had uh, had a pretty good inkling that none of them were going to make it off that mountain. Mm. So uh, everything just keeps coming in in small little pieces, and um, I'm just, uh, you know, so of course proud of Dad. But you know, there's still there's still nine families who don't have um, who have not had a funeral. There's still nine bodies that are that are left in 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 Laos that are still unrecovered. And it, what are the prospects? And, what are the prospects of? Uh... Recovering well, those bodies. bodies have been partial, partial remains of two of the bodies have been recovered. Um, Colonel Blanton and Tech Sergeant uh, Pat Shannon. Um, but um, the problem is, we asked to go to Laos. The United States government asked to go to Laos to look for nine nine bodies that are missing, and the Laotians are missing seven hundred thousand. Hmm. So it's difficult for them to sort of come to grips with that. Yeah, amazing. We turn back to Matt Proietti. You interviewed, uh, you know. Many of the their survivors, many who were there, and, and there seems there's there's a running theme as we all know from from veterans who are in traumatic situations. Uh, some of them are they're, they're having trouble coming to terms with what happened now many years ago. Well, right, and uh, related to Project Heavy Green, I mean the 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 two men who were alive that uh, that still alive that uh, Dick saved when you know in. Alive when I interviewed them, this uh, Stan Sliz, um, he's since passed away. But I interviewed him in 2012, and he passed away in 2013. So Stan, and then John Daniel, the gentleman who is still alive in Colorado, both of them were very honest with um, with their uh, them suffering from from nightmares and being on uh, you know, antidepressants and things like that through the years. I mean, it's it's just something that is always there with them. I mean, what they went through is, uh, I mean, they were, they were wounded physically and then, um, but mentally, you know, they lost all their, they lost all their comrades, you know, the, the men they were working with up there off the top of my head, I think it was 16 men were there that night and four made it off, made it off the hill alive. Hmm. There was five and then etch was shot, as we said, as yeah. Helicopter was leaving. Now, uh, Corey, I think it's you, you wrote in your afterward. I believe this is where I found this. Um, that the this is one example. Uh, I guess you could call it survivor guilt. Maybe ramped up even further if you're in the military and, and you're making decisions. But the helicopter pilot is he. You know, he wonders if I'd have left four seconds earlier, or 
just a little later, that burst of gunfire wouldn't have killed your father. So you were able to, as the son, help help give him a little bit of closure. Yeah, I don't, uh, you know, you can't, geez, you, you just can't blame, blame anybody for any of this, to be quite honest with you. A lot of people ask if we're bitter that it took 42 years or that, you know, that, uh, like you said, if if he had done something else, some other outcome may have happened. And I just can't live, I, I can't live that way. Um, I mean, uh, um, they're just, they, they did, everyone did what they were, were supposed to do, and there was an unfortunate outcome. Um, I'm just glad that, you know, John Daniel and Stan Sliz went on to have grandkids, you know, went on to raise great families and have, have uh, families that uh, were able to continue. So that's, that's all we can really ask for. It's, it, it, it is what it is. Rich Etchberger, you write in your foreword that uh, you, I guess at a certain point you were thinking, maybe I'll follow my dad into the Air Force. But uh, after he died, your career went a uh, completely different path. I wonder what, you, what your feelings are now as you look, look back. Your life could have taken a different turn. Yeah, you know, I, uh, and, and it's, it's interesting. I look back at, at photographs from when we were kids. Um, you know, Dad would bring home uh, Air Force gear for us. Uh, you know, hats and and cast off uniform parts and those kinds of things. And, and Corey and I would be out, uh, you know, playing playing army and and doing that. And I and I remember thinking, oh man, I I can't wait because uh, my my older brother uh, Steve had gone into the Air Force. And and my thought for a while, it's you know that's going to be my uh, that's going to be my path at some point. Maybe I'll go to the Air Force Academy. Maybe I'll be enlisted. You know, I I didn't know, but I knew that I really, uh, really felt a part of the Air Force family. And then, you know, um, when I graduated from high school in 1976, that whole period of time uh, from when Dad was killed in 1968 up to uh, 1976, uh, the United States uh, was not... Um, not very respectful of our, our military and our returning vet, veterans, and there was a lot of turmoil going on. Um, and I think, you know, seeing all that kind of stuff, um, not not living on an Air Force base, and also, um, you know, the impact of Dad being killed, um, that that really kind of affected my um, my outlook on where I was going, where I was going to go, and uh, you know, it, it kind of. Um, I'm not sure how that affected, um, you know, where I am today uh, in the sense of, you know, why I chose to go on and become a university professor, but um, it, uh, that, that was just uh, a different path than what I, I thought I was going to be, that I would travel when I was a kid. We're uh, coming down to the end of the program, and uh, there's a whole saga as to many people involved in, uh, in getting uh, the Medal of Honor approved for uh, Dick Etchberger, but I want to uh, I want to take us to the ceremony and then uh, get your feelings about this. This is it must have been extraordinary. Uh, three sons there, and I think uh, the Dick's brother, your uncle. Um, we we took this off YouTube. Here's uh, so we'll start with uh, President Obama entering, and then uh, go to the end of his his speech where he recounts your your dad's exploits. Let's hear this. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States and Ms. Michelle Obama.
our nation endures because they're patriots, like Chief Master Sergeant Richard Etchberger and our troops who are serving as we speak, who love this nation and defend it. And their legacy lives on because their families and fellow citizens preserve it. And as Americans, we remain worthy of their example only so long as we honor it, not merely with the medals that we present, but by remaining true to the values and freedoms for which they fight. So please join me in welcoming Steve, Richard, and Corey for the reading of the citation. So there's applause, and then the, the three sons come up, and I, I believe, uh, Rich, you're the one that was actually handed the, the medal flank by your brothers. Uh, what, what were your feelings at that point? <laughs> well, Tom, um, you know, when we walked up on the stage and everybody out there stood up to applaud, it was, um, and I was thinking that, um, you know, Dad, what Dad had done, uh, he would have, he would have done no matter what happened. I mean, that was just his role was to take care of his men. But when I looked out there at all those those folks, which included Vice President Biden and uh, the Air Force Chief of Staff and those folks, uh, I could see in their eyes that they were um, they were proud as, as I was, and so it was very emotional. Mm. Corey uh, Etchberg, what, what were your feelings at that point? I guess I was just saying to myself, I, I, I wish my mother was here for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she would have, you know, she kept that secret for 28 years, and yeah. it would have been it would have been very fitting for her to have been handed that medal. Um, but again, um, it was just uh, an amazing experience, and um, I was uh, so proud to be there representing Dad. Yes, your mother. That, that was that was a burden she carried for quite a long time, wasn't it? That keep that all it that was. secret. She actually. Yeah. I just figured this out very recently in the last six months or so. That, I mean, she received Dad's Air Force Cross at the Pentagon in January of '69. The Air Force decided they couldn't award the Medal of Honor back then because it would be too politically touchy. So they were going to award the medal, the Air Force Cross, and when the war was over and mission declassified it was supposed to be upgraded to the Medal of Honor. Well, she kept that Air Force cross in a, cl- in a closet, buried behind a bunch of blankets, because she didn't want to put it out, because if she puts it out, then people are going to start asking questions. And she signed those secrecy agreements. She made a promise to my father. She made a promise to our nation, um, you know, not to say anything. So um, it was a big burden for her. Matt Proietti, I guess th- this highlights what the, what the spouses and families go through. Yeah, it really, it really does. I mean, um, when we in the service deploy overseas, I mean, it's it can create a lot of stress. I mean, just getting out the door can take, uh, you know, to, to head out can be a lot of work, a lot of training, and all that. But uh, but once we're gone and and uh, say overseas working, it's like we're we're able to focus solely on our work, and we miss our families, we miss our loved ones, of course, but we're able to focus on our work mainly. Because the things about you know running your home and and budgeting everything and going to the grocery store and all that is being done for you and your your kids are being looked after by if you have children and and all that the the spouses really are you know are starting to get their 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 due in, in the role that they that they play in uh, our nation's defense and Matt I wonder if you could. Uh 
talk to me just a little bit about the Medal of Honor? Let, let me just read just the first clause in the, in the criteria. The Medal of Honor is awarded by the President in the name of the Congress to a person who, while a member of the armed forces, distinguishes himself or herself conspicuously by gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life or her life above and beyond the call of duty while engaged in an action against an enemy of the United States. This is, this is exclusive. This is the highest honor we can give to our military personnel. It is, and it's rarely given. We, we've, um, um, I, I'm, I know more about Air Force Medal of Honor recipients than other branches, but I mean, I know we've had Marines and and uh, and soldiers uh, get the Medal of Honor for um, actions in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East. But the Air Force um, hasn't had a person get it yet for for, and uh, and you know, we've been at war for what 14 years in Afghanistan. It it just shows you not that they're not going to be recognized in the future. We've had people who have received even just a week or two ago. We had people receive. Um, one um, one sergeant received um, the Air Force Cross, and two people with them received um, uh, a decoration just below that, the Silver Star. So, but the Medal of Honor, Chief Etchberger, uh, Dick Etchberger, getting it was—he's only the third enlisted person from the Air Force from the Vietnam War to get it. Uh, so let me close by by getting. Um... Some information, feelings from uh, from Rich and uh, Corey. Let me start with you, Rich. Um, you, there's a foundation now, right? Chief uh, Master Sergeant Richard L. Etchberger Foundation. Yeah, Tom. And um, you know, a, a question and and that that often comes up is, you know, what you know, weren't you upset uh, with uh, you know the Air Force for? And the U.S. government for kind of you know denying you this information for so long, and and how do you feel about that? And uh, Corey and I and our brother Steve uh, were trying to f- figure out a way uh, to make something positive for all of this. And uh, we can't change the past. The past is what it is. And we grew up in an Air Force family, and and we understand that that uh, wars have you know, difficult situations for families. But what we wanted to do uh, was make something positive. So we um, got together, we formed a nonprofit foundation, uh, the Chief Master Sergeant uh, Richard L. Etchberger Foundation, and our our goal is to kind of carry on Dad's work, uh, the idea of taking care of people, um, Air Force families. Uh, one of the things that we've done is... Uh, We've developed some ROTC scholarships for uh, Air Force folks that are going to school. Um, in fact, we've endowed a scholarship at Utah State uh, uh, for ROTC members uh, to the Etchberger Leadership Award um, that we've been awarding uh, since last year. And uh, we're also traveling the world um, trying to uh, share mom and dad stories because we... Uh, I think what we would like to uh, have folks know is that uh, Dad was a hero, but, you know, our mom was also a hero. She she carried that secret like her husband wanted her to. Um, so we just we want to share that story through the Foundation. Corey Etchberger, anything you'd like to say about the Foundation? And uh, we'll give you the, the last word here. What, what, what How would you sum up? I just, uh, there's nothing I enjoy more than sharing Dad's story after it was kept secret for 42 years. Um, just recently, I got back from a three-school trip to Wisconsin, um, talking to kids, um, 
about Deb's story, and they are truly amazed at it. And I, I know that they understand the meaning of his story when they come up and talk to me afterwards and ask me questions. And I guess I'd just like to say that this is our way of continue, continuing Dad's legacy. Amazing story. The book is At All Costs, The True Story of Vietnam War Hero Chief Master Sergeant Dick Etchberger. And we've been telling at least part of his story today. The author of the book is Matt Proietti, who is Chief Master Sergeant in the Air Force Reserve. And uh, Matt Proietti, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And Rich Etchberger is Professor of Wildland Resources at Utah State University, Uinta Basin, and a son of uh, Dick Etchberger. Rich, thank you. Tom, thank you so much for having us here today. And Corey Etchberger, also a son, a biology professor at Ursinus College in Pennsylvania. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for listening today to Access Utah.